Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie LMFM Podcasts, brought to you with Cartmacross Credit Union, where dreaming of warmer climates becomes a reality with a Cartmacross Credit Union holiday loan. O'Neill Street, Cartmacross or CartmacrossCU.ie. Wednesday morning, the 29th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Maria Bailey is undoubtedly under a lot of pressure. The Fine Gael TD will not chair a meeting of the Housing Committee today following a number of damaging stories about her in the Irish Independent and ahead of a meeting with the Taoiseach. Bailey's claim for damages after falling off a swing with a bottle of beer in one hand and possibly a bottle of wine in the other hand have not just been an embarrassment for Fine Gael, but is thought to have resulted in electoral fallout. Today, the Irish Independent publishes another story which Fine Gael will probably welcome like a hole in the head. Is Leo Bratker a media whore? Well, the Taoiseach has described himself as such. This is according to the former Justice Minister Alan Shatter, who claims Leo Vratker is obsessed with spin, that he set out to portray himself like Luke Skywalker while giving people the impression that Shatter and the former Garda Commissioner were like Darth Vader. Kevin Doyle Group, political editor with INM, Independent News and Media, has this story today and he joins us on the line. Good morning to you, Kevin, and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, it's a uh, remarkable story, a remarkable headline for that matter. Leo Varadkar betrayed me to win power, Shatter claims. Tell us more, please. Yeah, it's five years um, to the month since Alan Shatter stepped down from Cabinet and we, we all remember maybe not the, the, the minutiae and the exact details, but we remember the, the variety of um, controversies that were swirling around the Department of Justice at the time and swirling around on Garda Siakana, things to do with the penalty points um, to do with recordings at Garda stations uh, and to do with the way uh, whistleblowers' complaints were dealt with. And Alan Shatter obviously was caught up in that whirlwind and he said it was a perfect storm, um, but he felt he was weathering it. A lull had come and then at the the, at the then Transport Minister, Leo Radker, went to a road safety event while Alan Shatter was in Mexico uh, on government business and decided to make a speech which turned it into a Category 5 hurricane. Uh, and that was a speech which many people remember where after Martin mm. Callan and the, the Garda Commissioner had described whistleblowers, the actions of whistleblowers as disgusting 
and Leo Varadkar said they were distinguished and seemed to suggest uh, that Alan Shatter and the Department of Justice hadn't done enough. Um, but what Alan Shatter is now claiming in this new book five years later is that Leo Varadkar purposely ignored uh, things that he knew were happening in the background because he had been briefed up on them privately, uh, but he chose to ignore them to try and create a narrative and that narrative ultimately led to Alan Shatter having to resign eventually. And was it affect his launch of his bid to become the next leader of Fine Gael, which has been the consequence, if you like, or has resulted uh, over a period of time in Leo Radker becoming uh, the Taoiseach? He, he not just ignored uh, the briefings that he had received, but he went on this solo run, and this seems to be a bone of contention with Alan Shatter at a time when Alan Shatter was out of the country in Mexico. Yeah, and and it is widely acknowledged as a turning point in Leo Varadkar's career. He, it, it's pretty much the point at which he, he gained this reputation as a straight talker, somebody who doesn't stick to the usual political correctness. Um, but he did it while Alan Shatter was away, and Alan Shatter believes that was on purpose. And Alan Shatter had to... He was in Mexico, and he he knew that all hell was about to break loose, so he actually got the next flight back home to Dublin uh, to try and deal with the crisis. But things grew, and as happened in, in politics, uh, it became day after day, and there was revelation after revelation. Um, and from there, um, there really was no way back for Alan Shatter because there were so many problems uh, in Ungarda Siakana at the time. Um, and of course, Alan Shatter wasn't the only one that, that fell on his sword over time. Mm. Martin Callanan went as well. Uh, further down the line, uh, Francis Fitzgerald got caught up in, in things, Noreen, Noreen O'Sullivan, uh, who replaced Martin Callanan. So, uh, and, and arguably Enda Kenny uh, was brought down by all the stuff that was happening uh, with the Gardaí at the time. But Alan Shatter, very much in this book, um, which I spent a good chunk of a day in a count centre reading yesterday, Michael, <laughs> um, uh, he very much is pinpointing Leo Varadkar mm. as the one he blames for his for his own woes. It's very uh, timely for that matter because we'll be talking about uh, uh, Andy Kenny with Gavin Riley a a little bit later on because he's just published a a book uh, which uh, recounts the events uh, that led uh, to Andy Kenny deciding to resign uh, and of course a lot of that to do with uh, the background uh, that you're outlining for us now uh, Alan Shatter I, I take it had uh, aspirations to become the leader of Fine Gael himself did he because he, he says uh, that, Endic- or that Leo Radker was orchestrating uh, uh, extensive briefing to bolster his reputation and image at a, a time that he, he was deliberately setting out to, to damage Alan Shatter's reputation well, it's not. Alan Shatter doesn't suggest that he wanted to be the leader, that he would see himself in the frame whenever Enda Kenny had, would step aside. But I think it's more that he feels he was collateral damage, um, that he was perhaps an easy target for Leo Varadkar because of the things that were going on, but also because transport and justice at that time were very much connected because of the penalty point scandal um, that that, penalty, that Gardaí were cancelling penalty points for, for people they took favour on. Um, and that involves sports stars, journalists, all sorts of people. Um, and Alan Shatter seemed to suggest that Leo Varadkar had the inside track on a lot of that because it was related to the Department of Justice um, and transport. Transport dealt with the road safety authority. He suggested that Leo Varadkar was involved in things behind the scenes that he wasn't telling Alan Shatter about um, and that essentially um, he, he went out of his way to destroy him. Um, because it, it bolsters his career in, and, and made him what, what Alan Shatter says effectively a media hero. And just to give you one example, 
um, of, of, I suppose, you could perhaps call it bitterness, but uh, it, it's Alan Chatter's version of events. He even goes as far as to suggest uh, recalling the day of the marriage referendum and how what a great day it was and how Alan Chatter himself had campaigned on the issue for years. Um, and he makes a point of saying, uh, of complaining that the media, some of the media, were obsessed with Leo Varadkar, who'd only recently come out as gay, when the real story should have been people like Catherine Zapone and David Norris, um, who had been championing um, equal rights for years. Right. Uh, he talks uh, about uh, being ambushed. Uh, he talks about uh, Leo Varadkar uh, using a, a platform for publicity seeking. He talks about Leo Varadkar using a false narrative. Uh, he talks uh, about uh, media gold uh, as far as Leo Varadkar was concerned in terms of his comments about uh, the disgusting whistleblowers not being disgusting but being distinguished uh, and that he was dedicated to media spin and that he laughingly described himself as a media whore. Uh, little surprise, I suppose, uh, that Leo Varadkar has declined to comment to you on what uh, Alan Shatter is saying about him in this book. Yeah, I, I put much of what's in the story in The Independent today to the, the Taoiseach spokesperson last night. Now, Leo Varadkar was in Brussels at the European Council meeting, so uh, I suspect he may not have directly had time to, to pour over the details, but I gather he hasn't read the book yet, um, so he, he's not aware of the full contents of it. Uh, but the spokesperson declined to comment, didn't want to, to get in, dragged into a row. Now, I think you get away with that the first day when you haven't seen it, but once it's out in the public domain, I think the next time Leo Riker is in front of a microphone, uh, he'll struggle to not respond in some way because there are serious mm. allegations in here. This is pretty remarkable. I don't want to say unprecedented, but you don't get... There is a code for what happens when ministers leave and they tend not to attack their own party and particularly their former cabinet colleagues. It's just not the done thing. And so for Alan Shatter who sat at Cabinet with Leo Varadkar, who's now the Taoiseach, um, to be um, saying these things about the Taoiseach, it is damaging. There's no two ways about it. And people will read into it about whether Alan Shatter is obviously upset about his own career ending prematurely, but the Taoiseach, I think, will still have to respond in some form. Okay, no doubt, a frenzy and betrayal, the anatomy of political assassination by Alan Shatter will go on to be a bestseller. No doubt Alan Shatter uh, will do everything he, he can to make it a bestseller and will be out promoting it and giving interviews himself. Yeah, oh, he will definitely be, be out. There's a launch uh, in Dublin City Centre tonight um, and I think it's uh, Alan Shatter has, has form in writing books. Uh, we all remember Laura, his, uh, <laughs> yes. his colourful, shall we say, uh, uh, book that uh, was was taken to the censor a few years ago. Um, this one didn't go to the censor, but I suspect it certainly went through his lawyers very carefully. Um, and I'm sure Alan Shatter will have a lot more to say about that over the next few days. OK, uh, and all at a, a time uh, when uh, Fine Gael is under pressure as a result of the story you've been running, running on uh, Maria Bailey. The Taoiseach is set to meet with her. Do we know when that meeting will take place? No, they've been very coy um, about when that meeting will take place. But my best guess, and, and I have nothing to believe otherwise, will that it will happen today. I don't think yeah. uh, anybody in government buildings wants this to drag on any longer uh, than it has. We're now into day 10 uh, of this controversy. And if you're still dominating the media after 10 days, you are in serious trouble. So I think the Taoiseach will want to try. Maria Bailey said in, in her interview the other day she was drawing a line in the sand. I think the Taoiseach will certainly want to try and draw a line under this controversy because it's not going away. Mm. What he does is the problem and people in the party aren't really sure what type of sanction is open, particularly uh, because Maria Bailey in that interview uh, the other day 
refused to accept any real responsibility for having done anything wrong here. Mm. And uh, the Taoiseach wasn't in the doll yesterday, as you say, he was uh, in Brussels, but Heather Humphreys, uh, I think, made the position of uh, the government quite clear. But what will the action be against Maria Bailey? Yeah, Heather Humphreys, um, absolutely no accident, excuse the, the pun perhaps, in, mm. in what she said in the doll yesterday. That was definitely taught out, that would definitely have been cleared. Uh, by the Taoiseach's department and officials. And, and she talked about compensation culture, people making claims uh, for every fall, and that is their first reaction. It was it was quite an extraordinary statement. She never named Maria Bailey, but she was responding to a question from the Social Democrats, Catherine Murphy, who had asked about the Maria Bailey fiasco. Um, so there's no doubt what she was talking about. Um, in terms of the sanctions over the Taoiseach, the most likely outcome here is he, he probably won't want to lose her as a Fine Gael TD because the arithmetic in the doll is such uh, that he can't afford to lose TDs, especially now with Francis Fitzgerald uh, going to Europe. That's another body down for Fine Gael in the doll. Um, but she does hold this somewhat prestigious uh, chairpersonship of the Housing Committee, um, of which Owen Murphy is in front of this morning, but Maria Bailey, I gather, won't be chairing it. Um, that comes with a €9,500 top-up on your salary because of the extra work that's involved. I suspect um, that the Taoiseach would ask her to resign that position. So he, he wouldn't exactly sack her from it, but he would give her the opportunity to step down herself and that that would be the sacrifice. OK, as you say, Francis Fitzgerald is going to Europe. Uh, you spent a, a long time in uh, the count centre yesterday. We've uh, still two counts yet to be concluded. Uh, do you care to call them at this stage? Uh, well, I, th- I think in Midlands North West, uh, your your end mm-hmm. of the park, I think should be reasonably straightforward at this stage. It looks like Ming Flanagan uh, will definitely get across the line, um, and you uh, well, obviously with the Saoirse McHugh going out, mm. um, Maria Walsh now I think will be the new young female uh, in that constituency. So I think that and Matt Carty, of course, as Sinn Féin will will get in as well. So that seems reasonably straightforward, although. The guys could be up there in Castlebar for a while longer. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure whether it'll happen today or not. Uh, down south, uh, Mick Wallace, Billy Kelleher look pretty certain. Um, after that, Leon and Rita most likely, and then Grace O'Sullivan. Deirdre Clune still in with a shout, but she'll have to transfer very well from Andrew Doyle. All right. We'll leave it there for the moment and thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. Kevin Doyle, Group Political Editor with INM, Independent News and Media. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the controversy surrounding Maria Bailey and compensation culture was not the only issue raised with uh, the government in the Dáil yesterday. The betrayal of serving members of the Defence Forces was raised following comments by retired Commandant Cahill Berry to the Irish Times yesterday about how poor pay levels are driving members out of the Defence Forces and how the Minister with Responsibility for Defence, Paul Kyo is out of his depth. The Taoiseach is in Brussels or was in Brussels and spoke from there defending uh, the Minister and saying that a report by the Public Service Pay Commission on Defence Forces will be considered by the government in the next two weeks. Let's talk about this with Independent Senator Gerard Crockwell who was himself one time uh, a member of the Irish Army and a very good morning to you Senator Crockwell and thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. You've been campaigning I I think yourself for some time about improving uh, the pay conditions of members of uh, the Defence Forces. Were you surprised at how the former Commandant uh, came out as strongly as he did? 
Uh, good morning, Michael. Good morning to your listeners. Uh, yes, Commodore Berry, I know, I know to be a very fine soldier, a man who joined the cadet, became an infantry officer, subsequently became a, one of the crack ranger uh, officers in charge of a unit, and finally became a medical officer uh, in charge of the medical school, having qualified as a doctor. Uh, men like him don't throw their Sam Brown on the desk and walk away easily. I've spoken to Cahill. He's deeply, deeply hurt that he felt he had to leave. Uh, but he felt things were so bad he could not speak up from inside, so he had to come out. And he's um, not the only one who has felt uh, they had to leave. Uh, the Defence Forces has had its largest loss of personnel in about a decade. Uh, there's 119 fewer members of the forces uh, than there would have been a year ago. 731 left with 612 new recruits. That is correct. And the the, the problem that Minister Keogh fails to understand and I think we should put on the record as well, Michael, for your listeners. The Taoiseach is the Minister for Defence. He took that portfolio to himself when he became Taoiseach. He appointed uh, Minister Keogh as the junior minister with responsibility. But the book stops at the Taoiseach's feet. And we have tried, I have tried now over nearly four years to explain to them that you cannot recruit your way out of a military crisis. The, the, The young recruits that are coming in are welcome. But mm. they are not trained. They do not have the level of skill that the 700 and odd that left this year, 700 and odd left last year, 700 and odd left the year before. That's 2,100 skilled people who have walked away in the last couple of years. And of course, as part of the European debate, we've been talking about an issue that has been of debate in European politics and allied defence. And indeed, as part of the PESCO agreement, we have to increase spending on defence, but that doesn't go into salaries. No, it does not go into salaries. And the 50 million that t spoke about yesterday has gone into buying ships and up- upgrading um, armoured personnel carriers and buying other equipment. Equipment is of no value if you don't have people to use them. Not so terribly long ago, we had seven of our naval ships tied up in Hall Boland, the eighth one in the Mediterranean. Who is, who's looking after our shores? Uh, one of the questions that uh, people don't really seem to understand the role of the Defence Forces. We have gas fields off the coast of Ireland. What happens if one of those gas fields is uh, attacked Mm. at some stage by a terrorist group and taken hostage? What happens if a busload of tourists travelling through West Mayo or through Dingle or somewhere are taken by a group of of, um, uh, terrorists? And don't tell me there are not terrorists in the country. Of course there are. And We don't even have the capacity to get troops over that far in a short space of time. So I think we really need to sort of wake up and smell the coffee, as the man Mm. says. And the Taoiseach says the government will consider this report from the Public Service Pay Commission. I read in the Irish Times today, though, that won't uh, recommend a pay increase because it can't recommend a pay increase. It may recommend an increase in some allowances or other payments, but not a pay increase. Yeah, well, the the Public Service Pay Commission submission uh, has been sullied or has been doctored or has been, um, it it has not gone the direct route to the Pay Commission. What happened was the Defence Forces and the Department of Defence submission was first sent to the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. Why, I asked yesterday in the House why that happened. 
Uh, every other organisation had their submissions sent directly to the Pay Commission. But in this particular case, defence was first sent to deeper. The leak so far says that soldiers will get 96 cents a day of an increase. Okay, undoubtedly this will continue to be an issue over the course of uh, the couple of uh, weeks uh, before uh, the Commission reports, uh, but uh, we leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning, Independent Senator Gerard Crockwell. Now this Wednesday morning, as is usually the case on a Wednesday, the local newspapers are available to you and to us and Marie Kearns is here to tell us what's on the front pages this week. Good morning, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Lots to read in the papers today. Okay, and we're going to start in Dundalk with the Argus. That's right. Queen Maeve rules loud is the headline of the Argus over a great picture by Aidan Dullahan of Loud, the pole topper Maeve Yore, being kissed by her hubby Martin after she was re-elected. And in the accompanying story by Francis Carroll, the independent councillor is saying that it's too early to say if she will contest the next general election following her superb performance, which saw her mopping up 1,701 first preference votes. So we'll watch the space there mm-hmm. and see if she does throw a hat in the ring, Michael. Okay. Lots of reading on the elections, 12 pages in the Argus. So if you're a political mm-hmm. anorak like myself, if you'll enjoy that. <laughs> okay, and uh, I think uh, the same applies to all of yes. uh, the local papers. Yes. Uh, the Dundalk leader also uh, leads right. with uh, the elections. Yes, and on the front page there, they've gone with the headline, Erin um, and Sean are the big election winners, and that refers to Fianna Fáil's success with both Erin McGreehan and Sean Kelly winning Louth County Council seats for the first time. Inside, Michael, there's a story about a local man who has set himself a target of running 10 marathons in the space of six months to help raise funds for the Rape Crisis Network Ireland. Step mm. forward 22-year-old Conor Dunn from Drumcar, who's already ticked off two marathons from his list, having run in both Paris and Bordeaux last month. Okay. What impressed mm. me about the, the story even more was his reason for doing it. He was at mm. a conference in the USA last year and the theme of it was how to be a change maker in your community and it made him realise that you don't have to be famous or very rich to actually go out and make some sort of positive impact on your community. Okay. So fair play to him. Yeah. Well done, Connor. And uh, you can read more about that in the Dundalk Leader, the Drawed Independent, then reporting on the big Labour su- That's success. That's right, in yes. And it's the picture of the Labour trio of Paul Bell, P.O. Smith, and newcomers Michelle Hull that makes the front page story. Outside of the elections, there's an interesting story on page two that the famed Bine Obelisk structure, which was blown up 100 years ago, is to be rebuilt. By the Orange Order, Hubert Murphy writes that there are plans to reconstruct the monument with a special memorial some 50 foot high. Okay, well, the first uh, black woman uh, elected uh, to uh, local council has not uh, gone past uh, the uh, staff in the Mead Chronicle. That's right, from mm-hmm. cockle box to the ballot box. is uh, And there's a picture of Yemi uh, Adenuga um, on the front page taken by Seamus Farley. And it captures a lovely picture of her with her family, most of whom are sporting eye-catching yellow Yemi t-shirts, Michael. Mm. Uh, Sinn Féin election disaster is the headline of the front page story reporting what it describes as the shocking collapse of the Sinn Féin vote. Meanwhile, the Chronicle is celebrating a success of its own, having scooped the top award for best digital content in the annual media awards. And you can read all about that on page
34. Very good. All right. Uh, thanks uh, for that. Some interesting election stories, uh, predominantly yes. making uh, space uh, or taking up space in uh, the local papers uh, this week. Uh, perhaps uh, people want to continue talking to us about the elections or maybe there's something else uh, you've been hearing about or perhaps there's a, a separate issue that you'd like to raise with us. Uh, Marie, you'll be back in with uh, whatever comments come to us uh, in between now and 10 o'clock. Uh, if people do want to make comment, Marie and Maggie are taking calls now and our telephone number is 1857 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. The Immigrant Council of Ireland has published its impact report for 2018 covering the wide range of services uh, that it offers uh, to many people. Brian Cloran is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Immigrant Council of Ireland and he joins us now to tell us a little bit about the report and indeed to the work that the Council has been doing over the course of the last year, including three and a half thousand calls to your helpline, Brian, uh, covering a wide range of issues. Absolutely. Good morning, Michael. Um, Yes, we're very happy to to launch our impact report this morning, which details what we did in 2018. Um, We're an NGO, an independent law centre, so essentially we're there to respond to the needs of migrant communities. One of the biggest parts we do is the service provision, which, as you said, responded to over 3,500 queries, and our legal team then provided free legal support and representation to 169 cases this year, um, some of which all the way up to high court level in terms of judicial review. So it's about addressing some of the needs and the gaps that are in the Irish immigration system and supporting people through the process of moving to Ireland and settling themselves in here and becoming secure. And moving their family to Ireland because I think the highest number of calls you received was from people who wanted to to reunite with their families and I gather that in the vast majority of cases that means bringing family members to this country. Absolutely, yeah. Family reunification this year was the biggest, over 30% of the queries we received. So it can happen in a whole range of different issues. It can be somebody here on a work permit that wants to bring family. But also one of the things we see an awful lot is even Irish citizens looking for information because sometimes if somebody gets married to somebody from outside the European Union, they need an immigration permission for their spouse or partner to come here. Most people would be very surprised to hear that they don't have a legal right to do so. There's no legal right to be joined by your family member in that circumstance. You can ask the permission of the minister and it's a discretionary application. So there's a good lack of clarity in that kind of an approach and that's what people ring us about to go what can I expect, what do I need to provide, what happens if they say no. Mm. And it's a very worrying time for people because obviously if you want your partner to live with you in Ireland you need they need an immigration status and uh, for many people that's, that's a huge source of stress. Uh, and that's regardless of whether they have a, a refugee status or a residency status as uh, the case may be uh, but you get a, a lot of calls from from people uh, who wonder if they can regularise their situation if they're undocumented or about their residency, for that matter, if they have already received such status. Yes, absolutely. I suppose one of the things that people look for most is, is security and permanency, as was we call it. So essentially, if somebody comes as a student and they want to progress, how do I go from being a student to being a work permit holder? How do I get a full-time job? Or how do I you know, transition from a lesser type of immigration status to something better? So really, it's about people wanting to progress in their careers and start paying taxes and working and contributing to Ireland. But sometimes, as you mentioned as well, it's, it's from people who are undocumented. So if somebody's undocumented, that means they're, they're immigration status for some reason has lapsed or gone or they 
never had one in the first place in some instances. Um, and we try and help them to, to navigate that scenario because that's one of the most difficult things to fix. Mm. It's the most difficult thing to come back from if you're undocumented. We don't have clear channels for doing that in Ireland. And, um, and it's, it's worth remembering that a lot of the time somebody undocumented, that may happen through no falls of their own. They may lose a job. They may be exploited by an employer. They may have had health issues that meant they couldn't go and study. All those kind of things that can happen that means their status lapses. Or they may have been brought here under false pretenses or against their will. In fact, uh, there were 23 people who you assisted who had been trafficked to this country. They came from several African, South American and Asian countries. And all three were, all, all of them, bar three, were trafficked here for the purpose of sexual exploitation. Yes, that's one of the kind of niche things we do in our legal services, provide legal support to uh, exclusively women in our circumstance who are trafficked for the purpose of sexual exploitation. So in last year, as you rightly said, we provided legal support to 23 cases, all but three of them being um, sexual exploitation. So essentially that happens, as you said, through coercion, through deception, through force often, through threats of violence and actual violence, whereby somebody is told, come to Ireland, we'll get you a student visa, everything will be grand. They get here and they find out the situation they're in is completely different than what was sold to them. In many cases, people have the documents taken off them, they're imprisoned and they're forced into the sex industry. So they're some of the most traumatic and high-needs cases that we Mm. support Um, and something that Ireland needs to address as a matter of priority. Uh, And if they're discovered, uh, I gather it's uh, predominantly because they've sought help out. Yes, we often get referrals, mostly get referrals of these types of cases from support organisations. So there's, there's groups out there, both from the state and, and civil society, that are working, for example, with women in prostitution who may come across these circumstances by, by women coming into their services. Um, also, sometimes it happens through the Gardaí. They raid a situation, they refer somebody to us then, um, having raided a brothel, and then we provide the legal support, and they then kind of work with the guards also in terms of investigating the situation, trying to figure out who the trafficker was and trying to get a conviction of, of a trafficker, which is something we haven't managed to do yet in Ireland, unfortunately. Okay, and part of the solution, you would argue, is that men don't buy sex. Absolutely. Well, we, we've done a, a huge amount of work over the last number of years, the last 10 years, really, around the Sexual Offences Act, which came in in 2017, and it's really only starting to be implemented kind of this year. But one of the things, it, it, it's kind of very simple. The clear thing that drives the industry is demand, and demand is something that in any economic circumstance will cause people to try to profit from these circumstances. And in these cases, it's international criminal gangs. So we need to, in this case, decriminalise the women that are in the circumstances, make sure that they have clear exit paths and they don't have any fear approaching the authorities. But we need to say to men, that this isn't acceptable anymore. You're, you're fueling an international uh, industry of essentially human misery. Um, so that's, that's a big part of our work as well, is trying to get that act properly implemented, because we need to tackle demand, absolutely. And it can be tackled, I, I gather, to some degree uh, in isolation, but more effectively uh, if it's uh, done in conjunction with other countries. Well, it is, yeah, by its very nature, one of the most international kind of crimes um, trafficking involves, and this is what makes the investigation of it very complicated, multiple countries often, multiple different gangs, you know, throughout Europe and and in some cases, like we said, through Asia and and South America and Sub-Saharan Africa predominantly. Um, So the the gangs are international, the crimes are international, and therefore the methods that we use to tackle it need to be international. 
Um, and it's one that I think, you know, authorities in every country are grappling with the resources to try and actually do this effectively. So there's a number of different ways to do it. Policing is one, support is, is another to agencies like ourselves, and tackling demand is the other way as well. We need to kind of disrupt this chain, you know. All right. Uh, and uh, you've had many campaigns over the course of uh, the last year. Tell us about the Bloody Foreigners campaign, if you would. This, yeah, that is definitely one of my favourites, um, if not because the title of it is, is probably the most provocative. So it's an innovative campaign that we did last year with the blood transfusion service that was called Bloody Foreigners. And essentially what it was, was to promote the fact that blood donors in Ireland, uh, a huge proportion of them are people from a migrant background, but also to encourage more blood donation from people that are, that are migrants in Ireland as well. Um, and it was, it was using the, 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 the title of Bloody Foreigners as a way of kind of subverting people's expectations grabbing their attention and when somebody looks at it and goes oh this is what it's about and it was very effective and it was very 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 well covered at the time and one of the, the type of things we do I suppose that's maybe a little bit unusual but but is quite effective as well so we were very happy to do that this year and kind of uh, give people a bit of a, a chuckle at the same time. Okay and uh, you deal with every aspect of immigration uh, for young and old people uh, tell us about the children you work with uh, because I suppose there's many uh, different cases and many different problems that you've had to tackle. Absolutely. Well, one of the specialists of our legal service as well is support of children in the immigration system. Now, that can come around family reunification and things like you mentioned earlier, but more often it comes in situations where we are supporting children in care is a a primary issue. So that can be somebody who's in the care of the state after a family breakdown of some kind, or somebody who came into the state as an unaccompanied minor. They have immigration issues that need to be sorted out, and we often work with them and their social worker around getting them into the circumstance of being able to progress, just get to turn 18 and have a secure status in the country or go to college or go to school or do whatever they need to do. Um, and we often train the social workers as well on kind of the very complex immigration situations that these kids are caught up in. Um, and it's something that it, it's one of those areas whereby if we don't get it right, we create an awful lot of problems. You know, if somebody turns 18 and they don't have an immigration status in Ireland, there's a serious gap in their life and in their prospects. They can't go to college, they can't go and work normally, um, and it creates massive problems for the person. But also, as a country, we need to make sure that nobody falls through those cracks. Um, So it's it's a big priority of our work to look after this generation that are coming up. All right, well, look, thanks uh, for joining us at uh, the end of what was a a busy year uh, or on the report on uh, the work that you did last year, as the the case may be, uh, and uh, for your time with us uh, this morning for that matter. Brian Caloran, Chief Executive of the Immigrant Council of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns is back in studio with us with some of uh, the calls and text messages uh, that have come to us uh, this morning. What have you got for us there, Marie? Oh, I have plenty, Michael. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Marie from Drogheda phoned in just in relation to uh, the discussion at the top of the programme with uh, Kevin Doyle and says in relation to Leo Varadkar, she thinks he is very much about his image. She says that, remember the letter he wrote to Kylie? Mortifying, says Marie. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, well, according thinks to... A, thinks it was a picture opportunity. Mm, well, uh, according to Alan Shatter, Leo Vratker has uh, described himself as a media whore. There you go. Mm. <laughs> Jim from Tundog thinks it'll be very interesting to see how the Taoiseach handles the Trump visit, as it really go- is going to be an awkward one for him. Really? So Jim thinks... Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I imagine it'll be all sweetness and light. 
Uh, Michael, Maria Bailey's attempt to sue is indicative of the claims culture here in Ireland. You have to ask that if it wasn't for the media outcry, which realistically led to her withdrawing the claim, how much would she have got Mm. if it did go to court? I cannot understand how a hotel could be to blame for somebody falling off a swing. Well, the reports are that the hotel was set to contest the claim. There is also reports uh, that uh, they made uh, uh, an offer to her uh, of 600 euro, I think, uh, because of uh, the damage or inconvenience or whatever it was. Uh, but uh, as to liability, I think the hotel was set to contest that. Pat from Navin phoned in in relation to the local elections. Mm. Now that the dust, I suppose, are settling mm. and people are looking at who's in and who's out. And he says he feels bad for uh, outgoing Councillor Wayne Ford who lost his seat. He feels he worked tirelessly for the people of the area but says he actually thought there might be more changes on the council. He says only one candidate called to his door and that was Emer Tobin. But Wayne Ford he felt helped whenever he asked for help over the years and just feels a little bit sad for him. Okay, yeah. Well, it's a a, a tough business. There's no doubt about it, yeah. John says that seats are not given to councillors, Michael. They are loaned to them. Five years is a long time and he admires anybody who puts themselves forward, especially in this age of keyboard warriors. But he says that nobody should take it personally if they lose their seat. Sometimes you need a little bit of luck as well. And if that doesn't go your way, unfortunately, you could be the one to go. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Uh, Let's uh, talk about uh, smuggling now and illegal tobacco in uh, this country, which is a huge problem because all cigarette packets produced in or destined uh, for the EU market are to carry a traceability marking or uh, unique identifier under new legislation. Let's talk about uh, this with Benny Gilsonen, who's a spokesperson for Retailers Against Smuggling. Good morning to you, Benny. Thanks uh, for joining us. What do you understand uh, about this new measure? Uh, This new measure, Michael, has been brought in by the EU with a view to trying to curtail uh, the sale of illegal or smuggled tobacco products. Uh, from my perspective and our perspective, this is not going to have any bearing whatsoever on the smuggled tobacco product for the simple reason being that track and trace, as it is called, mm. is tracking and tracing the legitimate product that comes in from uh, the factories uh, to the suppliers here in this country to be distributed to the wholesalers and the retailers. It has to be tracked as it comes into the supplier, Mm. tracked as it goes out from the supplier, tracked as it goes into the wholesaler, tracked as it goes out from the wholesaler to the retailer, so that the revenue and the customs can trace every packet of legitimate cigarettes that is sold in Ireland. So when somebody takes a pack of 200 out of their inside pocket and sells it to you for a, a discounted price, uh, it'll be of no surprise to you that it, it won't have this identifier. That's correct. That is quite correct. This, the, 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 the person or people who are involved in bringing in the illegal cigarettes or the smuggled cigarettes uh, will not have this identifier and uh, it's not going to have any bearing on them. This It's another layer of bureaucracy uh, dealing with the legitimate product. It is not a layer to deal with the illegal or the smuggled product. It is, it's, it's still 
playing right into the hands of the smuggler. You know, they mm. can do what they like, uh, when they like, where they like and how they like. But if it has no impact on people selling cigarettes in markets or on street corners, as uh, the case may be, or door-to-door, as we often hear about, uh, maybe it'll deter news agents from selling illegal cigarettes. Yes, it, 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 uh, any news agent or any retailer, and we won't just say news agent, yeah. any retailer, mm. Michael, yeah. who presently is licensed to sell cigarettes, will have to have this identifier mm. code on them. He will have to be registered. He has to register and get to get a special registration uh, to sell these cigarettes. Mm. But if he or she are selling illegal cigarettes, he or she is not going to be one bit concerned about this code. He will have it for the legitimate ones he's selling. Mm. But he will know the ones that he's going to sell the illegal ones to. Mm. But will it not be policed? It, it, it may well be policed, uh, but like when when they go down the road of police and this, they're going to be using customs and revenue people to police something that, uh, realistically, it is not going to return anything to them. They need to be policing the illegal market, the smuggled market. Mm. This is the, this is where all of the the, the product that is on the market, as we spoke the last day. But a a lot of the illegal cigarettes are being sold through... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Retailers, are they not? Uh, not not really, Michael. No, there may be a, 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 a certain amount, mm. but it's a small amount. That and will this not weed out that amount, whether it's a small amount or a big amount? Well, as I said earlier, Michael, it won't. If the, if the person who is selling illegal cigarettes is registered to sell cigarettes, number one, which mm. like, he has to have a licence to do, if he or she is registered, well, then they have to have this code. Now, if they're going to sell illegal ones, they're going to make sure that those illegal ones are being sold to people who they know personally. They're not going to be sold to somebody who will walk in off the street, oh, can I have 20 of this, or can I have... Customs officer, in other words. Uh, Okay. All right, Benny, we leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us as always. Uh, That's Benny Gilson and spokesperson for Retailers Against Smuggling. Now let's go back uh, to the phones and the text messages that have been coming to us, Marie. Jack from Cullen. Michael, now that the posters are down, maybe people will look at the ground and see all the rubbish that's lying on the ground. It's amazing what annoys people like posters, but then they walk past all the rubbish that's about the place. Yeah, or they throw their rubbish on the street or their (laughs) cigarette butts, whether they're legal or illegal, as the case may be. 
may be. A texter says, absolutely wrong that when a candidate wins two seats or wins seats in two electoral areas that they can nominate someone who didn't face the electorate. It is different when a councillor is elected to the Dáil and they replace the candidate. Mm, you know, they're they're until yeah. mm-hmm. the next mm-hmm. election, mm-hmm. says this texter. Okay. Uh, Brendan says, I'm in Drogheda, rural area, and I'm wondering when we will know what is going to happen to Kevin Callan's extra seat. Right. Uh, well, he has three days to decide. Uh, I think uh, this is uh, the second of uh, the three days from the results being published. Uh, so I gather that means uh, tomorrow, the next day, that should be decided and done and dusted uh, because he has won a seat in urban and in rural and he has That's to right. choose which yes. one to take. And Sharon mm-hmm. Kilgan has mm-hmm. to do the same yes. in Meath. Mm-hmm. David phoned in and he says in relation to Meath County Council, he thinks it's good that there are new faces on the council. He feels that change sometimes is a good thing and it would be interesting to see what these particular people bring to the table. Yeah, well, you'll find out in time to come. <laughs> you mm. sure will. Mm. Martin phoned in mm. following the interview yesterday with Saoirse McHugh, the Green mm. Party candidate. Yeah, candidate. who's since been knocked That's out. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just wanted to say that he felt she was a breath of fresh air, that she had listened to her interview with us during our coverage of the campaign and was impressed with her then. Mm. Mm. And then when he saw her in action on the television, it reinforced, you know, the, mm. the good thoughts he had about her. And he, he wanted to make the point, though, that if she hadn't have got that slot on television, half of the country probably wouldn't even know her. So That's it right, does yeah. mm. reinforce the importance of mm. getting that time yeah. in, on, you know, in the media yeah. for mm. all the candidates. Yeah, it's remarkable. I think a lot of us are, are surprised whether we work in the media or not, uh, how much of an impact that one appearance had on so many people. Yes, and it mm. probably was because she mm. did stand up uh, to Peter Casey mm. and she yeah. kind of, mm. it did bother her, you know, yeah. to be in the, on, in the limelight and to do mm. it then. And I suppose what she had to say resonated with people too, but it wasn't enough, Michael. No. Nope. <laughs> it wasn't enough. Mm. Uh, we'll go then just to another thought on the... Um, European elections just uh, following our coverage yesterday I also had a phone call in from Marion who says that she was delighted to see that Mairead McGuinness was elected that she felt that Mairead had been a very good representative for Ireland as a, as a whole not just this particular constituency mm. and that uh, they seem to have a lot of respect for her in Europe and that's what we need. Okay, very so good. So we'll finish on All that. Right. Well I'm sure Mairead McGuinness will appreciate that and uh, we appreciate the call for that matter and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us and thanks Marie for bringing us those calls today if you'd like to add to what's been said our telephone number is 1850 715 958 Michael Reed on LMFM Now the image of uh, Drogheda as a town has uh, taken a very negative uh, blow because of uh, the ongoing uh, criminal gangland feud the shootings, uh, the petrol bombs and uh, the constant fear that people are living in in the town. Why would anybody want to visit Drogheda is a, a question I think that can be reasonably asked but it's expected that at least half a million people will be visiting here in the next couple of months uh, for Flakul Neheran, uh, the second time that the town has acted as host to the FLA. Paddy Donnelly is uh, the Secretary of uh, the FLA Committee. He's also Director of Services with Louth County Council and he joins us here this morning and a very good morning to you and morning. thanks for joining Michael, us. Thank uh, you very much for having me in this morning. Well do you care to answer the question, why would anybody care to visit a, a town where they might get a, a bullet in the head? 
Well, Michael, indeed, you describe Drogheda as it's been described in the media on all platforms in recent weeks. And you correctly described Drogheda. But if I bring your listeners back to how Drogheda was being described last July and August, July, it was a town in anticipation, anticipation of Flakeol and Heron 2018 and what was Flakeol and Heron. I can tell you in August, the people of Drogheda and the people of County Loud knew exactly what the flower was and what Drogheda was about and Drogheda was about the centre of Irish culture for that week long and that week long continued the very positive vibe that came about Drogheda continued right on after that and continues right up until this day we are now planning for Flack Hill in 2019 bigger and better and brighter all the agencies all the volunteers all the supporters are Mm -hmm. back on board and driving forward we are not immune to the problems, as you have de- described there. On, on a day-to-day basis, I would deal with those people, uh, as you said, from my role with Low County Council, do- deal with those people who are suffering the consequences of that. And, and it is tragic, and it is certainly heartbreaking to meet people who have suffered problems around their, their estates and that. Have there been questions <coughs> uh, about Drogheda as a host town from outside of the area? No, we have not got anything that that uh, Coltus Coltorierin, who have awarded the flag to Drogheda, are very confident that Drogheda and the plans and the execution of the flag in 2018 stood the tests of the exorbitant numbers that came unforeseen at a flag before the numbers. And I, I certainly wasn't measuring them, but those that measured them put it in, as you say, around the 500,000. So there's never any question. We're working closely with the Chief Superintendent uh, Mangan and his team there, Superintendent Waters, and all of the team there in Drogheda. We're working with them on, on a number of fronts, which we did last year. And uh, we're quite confident security and policing is a matter for the Gardaí. They have the resources to, to require. they Chief Executive of the County Council has an initiative going with all the agencies to address and try and mm. input into the areas where are affected by the, the problems in Drogheda. But that, and that's running parallel to all of the services that we normally deliver. But we are confident that, uh, and I have to say there's been a very positive vibe in our statutory meetings because there is a statutory process that runs along this whole flat thing. It's all music and dance mm. for everyone else. And we're very positive very good engagement with the Gardaí, very positive about all this thing. And this is going to put Drogheda, the spotlight back on Drogheda for all the right reasons. And Drogheda is a great place and it is a great place for the FLA. And I've been delighted to have had the opportunity to work on the FLA last year, really looking forward to it this year. And of course this year, the problem is that everyone in Drogheda knows what the FLA is about now this year and everyone wants to have their own angle on it. And it is great. It is very positive. And I think the, the challenges that Drogheda faces will certainly be overwhelmed by the positivity that Flakeholm and Heron will bring in 2019. Well, we could only hope so because it really was an exceptionally positive experience uh, last year, not just uh, for the town or the people of uh, the town, but for people from far and wide, as you say, about half a million people visited the town. It's a, a town with a, a population of a, about 40,000 or thereabouts. Uh, they say there's just 100 people involved in this ongoing feud Uh, but that's a lot of people in terms of uh, the chaos uh, that they can create 
Yes, it certainly is. And as I said, the, the security and policing is a matter for the Gardaí. And, and we mm. work with them and take their advice in relation to our planning. And we have professional event managers on board who are directing our health and safety element mm. of the of the FLA and working very closely with the Gardaí and taking on board the advice of the Gardaí. We've been given all sorts of assurances over the course of uh, the last number of months that some of them have proven to be false. We were told that all of the resources uh, necessary would be made available but then uh, overtime was banned uh, the armed response unit was withdrawn from the town and a, a man was shot at in broad daylight at the M1 retail park and there was just one patrol car in the town uh, since then we've seen a, another gangland drive-by shooting at Hardman's Gardens and uh, again so many innocent people one particular woman uh, who came very close uh, to ending their days uh, it, it can be very very dangerous when this goes wrong Indeed, Michael, and all of the things you you outlined there are factual, and they are all matters that uh, that are being managed and dealt with by Angarda Shikana. I'm I'm not the spokesperson, mm. you know, for Angarda Shikana, but I can assure you and assure your. But listeners, you accept the assurances that we've got this time around. Oh, absolutely, mm. I can assure because you because we were given false assurances before. Well, I'm not so sure they would be false, but I certainly can assure you that the the engagement we've had with Angarda Shikana in relation to the planning of the FLA Kiolna mm. for 2019 have been exceptional we have there has never been a, a request that we've put to meet or to get advice on the particular element of the flat that the, the uh, chief superintendent and his team have not been available to us we have weekly engagements daily engagements with some levels of the of the uh, organisers to uh, manage all all of those issues. And mm. look, Drogheda is not the only community in the country or indeed across the, the Europe and the wider field that are facing the challenges. It is unfortunately a 21st century problem that Drogheda is uh, is experiencing. And mm. we, we've seen in news reports today and during the week when the dust of local and European elections settled that there are still problems in communities. So Drogheda, but, and Drogheda is the largest town mm. in Ireland. So, you know, with large towns come problems and those problems, I believe, are being managed. I think the FLA in all that it brings that is positive can certainly help that because I think and, it has and do, united Do, do we people. have to accept that? Do you think we have to accept that Paddy Donnelly or, or deal with them after they've manifested uh, to put out fires rather than trying to prevent them? No, and I think as I, I mentioned earlier that mm. the Chief Executive uh, has uh, convened a, a grouping uh, of the agencies in the area to have this proactive approach after ra- this rather came, than uh, After this came to a, a peak and after it came to uh, national uh, media focus. Uh, I, I mean, Louth County Council uh, surely has to take some responsibility for the problems in the town. If you look at uh, Money More, the housing estate uh, where a lot of uh, this trouble is centred uh, or is stemming from, uh, there's CCTV in uh, the estate, uh, but no film, it seems. Nobody's watching it anyway. Yeah, and look, there are certainly infrastructural challenges around managing any of the develop, developments we have, including money more. But how many years has that been the case? And how many times have people been saying people are, are acting terribly in front of these cameras without fear because there's nobody watching? Yeah, well, I, I don't believe that there's nobody watching them. The problem is with, with cameras is... and. Those people that are committing these crimes are well able to commit them with or without. And you spoke about people performing acts of violence mm. in broad daylight with no fear or, or, or favour. So it's the, 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 
the deterrent of a CCTV camera is not necessarily going to correct that. I think there are more needs to be done. And local County Council have mm. been engaging with communities. You'll see through our local community development committee, through our uh, community-based uh, tidy towns mm. programs, through our uh, investment in, in communities uh, in initiatives. All of those things are building strength. H- and how many people has Loud County Council evicted for antisocial behaviour? We have, uh, in a lot of cases, we haven't actually had to, to cause evictions because our engagement mm. with the tenants ended up in voluntary surrender of properties. And we've had a number of, of properties. Okay, but you're talking about surrendered. some serious drug dealers in the town. You're talking about some people <coughs> who have been discovered with arms in the town. You're talking about people who've thrown petrol bombs or being involved in these feuds and that sort of thing. Uh, absolutely. And, and we have a procedure in place now when there is convictions and when we have, because you will know, Michael, mm. that we are required to follow to the letter of the law and for us to mm. evict someone, we must be clear and have good But you cause. can't tell us this morning that you have evicted anybody, let alone bar them from the town. Uh, many years ago, I think there were a, a couple of individuals who were barred from coming into Drogheda, but that hasn't happened in a very long time. We, we, and we have ongoing, and our tenant liaison and our mm. investigation teams are very active in, in relation to uh, tenant management. We have a new uh, tenant uh, liaison team in in place mm. that uh, has has been bolstered now by uh, new staff coming in there and certainly there is a lot more engagement with our with our tenants and look there are it as you said there is this is a minority the majority of our tenants are all good law-abiding mm. tenants who... Well, it's a very small minority involved in the very big feud, but it, it's uh, the behaviour that leads to that type of behaviour, how people are growing up. Joyriding, for example, in Rathmullen. Uh, people were at the end of their tether before they were told they would get speed ramps. Yes, well, look, again, the, all of these things, there is a cost on them, and we mm. have a limited uh, allocation where we can invest uh, in reintroducing speed ramps and speed tables and traffic calming measures. As well. And it's, it's quite easy to identify what might be, but again, we have to we have to measure this. With uh, people have to also live in in these communities. People have to enjoy mm. their own community. And the installation of speed ramps and installation of speed tables and all of that are a deterrent to those who want to commit these crimes. But they may move somewhere else. Mm. But but these introducing these all of those it, it causes a problem for mm. those who want to enjoy the normal amenities of li- living in, in, a, in a, a development of course it does Paddy but these aren't complaints I'm just thinking up off the top of my head uh, they're complaints that have been made over a very long period of time by uh, the local elected representatives uh, who claim that the executive is removed from the reality of life on the ground well I, I don't think that's true like and any of the local representatives will tell you I have with my colleague directors have been out and walked the ground, walked and looked and met the residents in relation to these and not everyone wants speed ramps outside their, mm. their house, not everyone wants this, they, they recognise that it is a way of managing some of the problems that we see in, in communities but we have been underground and we're not at all mm. removed, I can assure you we're not at all removed and I'm regularly out on the ground with my uh, teams from the housing department now and previous to that was in the operations teams so we are quite aware of what, what, what is happening and have uh, a first hand knowledge of what's going on and our door is always open to to meet with residents and individuals who want to engage with us and to share the concerns they have and within our resources where we have it we will do that of course we don't have the magic wand to wave but certainly I think where we can raise all boats is with the FLA and mm. I I know that yeah. you're 
talking about very serious things. Michael mm. here and the FLA is a very serious piece of business. I think if you look at the statistics from Falch Ireland who looked at and seen mm. that last year's FLA, 58% of the people were from the local area. 48% of people who attended had never seen a, f- a music festival like this before. So mm. I think from a community development, community engagement p- point of view, this is a very important piece of work to do so that we can mm. help. And I think by raising all boats on that front, it will help manage the problems that we have in all And uh, I think in fairness, everybody was very impressed at how uh, the event was managed overall last year and how well the town looked and how warmly people were greeted when they came to draw it. It was undoubtedly a, a huge success and hopefully it'll be uh, as successful this year. Can it ever be replaced? Because uh, it won't be uh, in Drogheda in 2020. Oh, indeed. And look, one of the key parts of the FLA Executive Committee has been from the beginning is we have had a particular uh, uh, subcommittee working on the legacy of of the Mm. FLA and looking to see what that legacy will will be left. And you talk about the warm welcome that was Mm. received. That warm welcome wasn't an imported warm welcome. That was a Drogheda warm welcome. And that warm welcome will always remain. And I think people who come to Drogheda both from national and international audiences and see the positivity, see what Drogheda have to offer, see the culture and the arts, the heritage that is in and around Drogheda, they will want to come back to that. And as you say, if they get that Drogheda welcome again, they'll want to come and see the concerts, they'll want to come and see what we have to offer during the flood, they'll want to buy the tickets, they'll want to stay in the people's houses in Drogheda. And then they'll want to come back after. And we have seen and have anecdotal evidence from local hotels and pubs that after the flood, there was a continued trickle of people who came to Drogheda to see what Drogheda w- was about. So we're expecting that, you know, that after the se- second year, it will be with all the planning that's going into it, be as good and bigger and better than 2018. We will see people mm. want to come back to Drogheda. We have our president who has his office have indicated he will be back to launch the flag mm-hmm. in, which is a great honour for Absolutely, Drogheda yep. to have mm-hmm. the president who mm-hmm. is a free man of Drogheda uh, visit the town two years in a row mm-hmm. to launch the flag and his uh, reception he got last year, he was, I think, mm-hmm. amazed himself and uh, the majority of the people up front and stage were the local people of Drogheda mm-hmm. given that warm welcome and we look forward to seeing that again. Okay, I think President Higgins does like anything to do with Irish culture so maybe he'll uh, spend some time in the town as well. To well certainly we were surprised as were his staff with him that mm. he, he stayed on for two concerts yeah. uh, last year and we're, we're hoping that he will encourage him mm. with there's a very full programme there available very on the FLA good. website and mm. encourage your listeners to get out there and start booking tickets uh, and soak up the atmosphere for that matter just Absolutely indeed, by roaming around fantastic yeah. occasion we hope it, it goes as well this year as it did last year and thank you indeed for coming thank you very us. much Michael thank, thank you, you very much indeed Paddy Donnelly who is uh, the secretary of uh, the FLA committee Michael Reed on LMFM. Now we'll go back uh, to the 7th of February 2017 and uh, how events uh, unfolded over the course of the nine days from then that led to the resignation of Enda Kenny. Enda, the road... The Nine Days That Toppled a Taoiseach has just been published. Its author is Gavin Riley, who is uh, the political correspondent with Virgin News Media and also a political column- columnist with uh, the Beat Chronicle. He's with us in studio this morning and a very good morning, morning to you, Michael. Gavin. Thank you nice indeed. Nice to be here in person for once. But yeah, well, it's nice to have you here uh, and uh, nice to be talking about your book. It makes for a very interesting read. It's a little bit like uh, reeling in uh, the days of a couple <laughs> yeah. of years ago yeah. over the course of the Nine Days uh, 
you go into a, a lot of detail about what was happening in the world over those nine days and uh, it prompts many memories uh, of the stories that were making the news, whether mm. that was scoliosis or where President Higgins yeah. was visiting or how the weather was at, at yeah, the time. Yeah, how, how the weather was. Moment. Donald yeah, Trump yeah. was only about three yeah. weeks into his tenure in the White House. So there was a huge amount going on. Storm mm. had just collapsed yep. over cash for ash and we thought, oh, that'll sort itself mm. out in a couple of weeks. And, and a lot of talk about Brexit and that sort yes, of thing. Yes, yeah, so yeah, there, there yeah, was an awful lot going on, but I suppose mm. it helps to, to just put it all in context. But it, in, it was only nine days. And when I sat down trying to pull the whole story together, I, I never thought that those nine days actually had so much within them that you think back and you think, God, all of those events that accumulated in Enda Kenny having to, you know, been thrown overboard by Fine Gael, that must have happened over the space of, God, three weeks, four weeks. And then you go back and look at it and it was only nine days on the calendar that the Tuesday of one week, everything seemed fairly calm and the cabinet mm. was dealing with pretty routine business. And then, you know, that was the, the day, morning of the first day. And by the evening of the ninth day, he was a, politically speaking, he was a dead man walking. Uh, and came this is the story of Enda Kenny, but there are many players. Uh, one yes. of the key players, of course, is Maurice McKay, mm. but we also have to talk about Francis. Fitzgerald, uh, we have to talk uh, about uh, Catherine Sapone yeah. uh, and, uh, and the some Independent Alliance and uh, Fianna Fáil, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a big Jim cast O'Callaghan. of characters, all yeah. right, yeah, yeah, yeah so there, there's yeah. an awful lot of people in it and I suppose yeah. that that's what made the whole thing so delicate was because the government was reliant on so many individual factors to keep it together, that as we know, you know, away from the era of new politics, you'd usually have a majority government and you would have either one majority party or two coalition mm. partners. And once those two parties are on side with each other, then there's no question over the government falling. But things were so brittle this time around because you needed Fianna Fáil to, to continue with their confidence and supply deal. You needed to keep them abstaining in the dole or else the government would collapse anyway. Then you need the independent alliance to stay on side. But then there are other components mm. within the government because there's Catherine Zappone as the Minister for Children. Mm. There's Dennis Nocton at the time the Minister for Communications and a few other independents outside who are you know smiling at the government and allowing it to keep the show on the road so nobody had ever been more reliant on a stool with so many different legs any one of which could have brought the whole thing tumbling down which was part of what made the whole thing so brittle and allowed uh, Enda Kenny's future to to prove so fragile as it was And your story or your story uh, about Enda Kenny's demise begins on the 7th of February the Mm. day the government announced that it was uh, going to uh, Establish uh, the Charlton Tribunal. Yeah. The next day, the leader of the Labour Party, Brendan Howland, was in the Dáil making claims uh, that uh, the Garda Commissioner had been briefing against Morris Yeah, McCabe. so the, the whole thing was really uh, framing up to be very quietly done. It was almost being done on the QT because on day one, the Tuesday morning that you mentioned, 7th of February 2017, there's a Cabinet meeting and the Cabinet is at that morning going to decide to set up a Commission of Investigation. And mm. of course, in the last few years, we have Commissions of uh, uh, Investigation a list the length of our arm, the length of a European ballot paper possibly with how many commissions there have been. Mm. But usually those commissions go about their business fairly privately and the government almost tends to enjoy when these things happen in private because as soon as you set up a commission then everyone refuses to answer questions in Mm. public anymore because they don't want to prejudice or affect the work of the commission going on behind the scenes. So the government on this particular morning was supposed to be setting up a commission of investigation to look into certain claims made by Maurice McCabe and by the former Garda press officer Dave Taylor and they had alleged that there was a smear campaign being run at the highest level, uh, engineered by both uh, Noreen O'Sullivan and her predecessor Martin Callan as the Garda Commissioners. But the Cabinet was going to set this up and it would all be done relatively quietly. There would have to be a token dull debate to sanction it all, but it was all supposed to happen very much under the radar, under lock and key. Then, as you mentioned, on the second day, mm-hmm. Brendan Howland walks into the doll and Brendan Howland reports that that very morning he has gotten a phone call from a journalist, Alison O'Reilly, at the Irish Mail on Sunday and she has reported to him 
that Noreen O'Sullivan is directly calling journalists to suggest that Morris McCabe is guilty of some sort of sexual crimes. Now, he admits himself that he hasn't fact-checked these things, and of course it was later proven that he had done no such thing mm. and no charges there could, could ever be mistaken. False yes. allegations completely. But nonetheless, Brendan Howland has entered this into the public domain. On the preface of, he says that he wants to make sure that this is investigated mm. by the commission that's about to be set up. Mm. But because he does it in a public forum, suddenly the lid is lifted on all of this. And there were those of us around Leinster House who had heard some whispers that maybe Morris McCain's uh, back history wasn't as, as pure as gold or as pure as silk or that there was maybe certain stains mm. in the background that we ought to take into context when we were treating his his testimony about all these various things, including penalty points. But suddenly now Brendan Howland was just launching it into the public domain and really letting the, the lid in and letting the cat out of the bag and letting the entire public mm. know exactly what sort of allegations were being made against him. And it was the fact that he did that publicly then forced Noreen O'Sullivan to make a comment, which then ended up leading mm. to a primetime programme the following night, which went into further detail, mm-hmm. which then ended up raising questions as to how many politicians knew what and when, mm. whether all of the cabinet should have uh, been told, whether some ministers should have been more forthcoming with what they knew, and the whole botched handling of it all and some of the contradictions are what ultimately led Kenny to be sent down the plank. And it unfolded slowly, didn't it? Uh, because Brendan Howland asked... Uh, about uh, the commissioner briefing against McKay mm. uh, and that that should be investigated. Yeah. Uh, and if it was to be investigated, that would come under what they call the terms of reference, which yes. sets out mm. what the tribunal will actually yes. do and what it will investigate. So the doll then invest, uh, d- debates what yes. the terms of reference should be the next yeah, day. Which it does in, in every instance of a commission of investigation. And then John McGuinness of Fianna Fáil raises yes. the issue of Tusla. Yes. Now, people uh, were scratching their head at the time, go, were they? Tusla, yeah. Tusla, what, the, what the hell does was mm. Tusla have to do mm. with it? Tusla is the child and family agency and it's only been recently spun off the HSE and it's supposed to be involved in social care and child protection and all of that. None of us can think what the hell that would have to do with Morris McCabe. God, where, mm. where's all this going? But uh, by the by, it turns out that Fianna Fáil already know at that point where it's going because in the aftermath of Brendan Howland introducing these claims in the Dáil Chamber, Micheál Martin, who has previous relationship with Morris McCabe, they had worked together on raising certain things, calls him up and says, how are you feeling about this? Are you okay that mm. Brendan Howland has just gone so public with all of these allegations against you? And uh, McCabe says, yeah, well, I was a bit surprised about it, but I'm happy it's out there mm. because I want people to know what I've been facing. But also, by the by, there's more to come because Katie Hannon has been working on a piece for primetime on RTE mm. tomorrow night and that's going to have a lot more and that there's an angle here for Tusla. So Fianna Fáil already know that there is an angle for Tusla. And that then leads to a whole separate row because Fianna Fáil say, right, we need to make sure that the terms of reference incorporate Tusla, then we need to to make sure that it's done. But how do we do that in a kind of a discreet way without doing exactly what Brendan Howland did Mm. and shouting it from the rooftops so that everybody knows? We need to do this with a little bit more decorum. Mm. So they decide, right, I'm going to send, Michal Martin says, I'm going to send my justice spokesman, Jim O'Callaghan, I'm going to ask him to call up Francis Fitzgerald, the Minister for Justice, Tonished at the time, Mm. and just make sure that she's aware of this Tusla thing so that when the terms of reference are introduced to the Dáil, that she knows what to expect or that it's kind of future-proofed that way, that she knows it can be taken in. But that in itself then brings its own row because in the days that follow, when suddenly the whole public become aware of the fact that there was this Tusla file containing Mm. completely wrongful allegations against Morris McCabe, uh, Jim O'Callaghan says, I told Francis Fitzgerald about that the other night in the Dawn Bar. And Francis Fitzgerald says, no, you didn't. And it becomes this separate he said, she said. So in one case, you've got you know these allegations that the Garda Press Office is responsible for all these massive uh, smears and whether the government may have been informed. Then you have this he said, she said row between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael about whether the government was given a proper heads up on this or not. 
And then that is immediately mm. trumped in a couple of days' time by a he said, she said within uh, some members of the cabinet. So it's mm. not even just like it's a, a government opposition dynamic that's at play here, that even the government itself within a couple of days was having a row over who said what and when because even they couldn't get their story straight. Uh, uh, and you have some fascinating insight into what was happening in the background. A call between Francis Fitzgerald and Catherine Sabone mm. uh, and Francis Fitzgerald saying they're looking for my resignation and next thing there's a, a Sinn Féin motion of no confidence. Yeah, and this is what really then brings the whole thing to a head because on the, the Thursday night is when the primetime uh, report mm. goes out and, and the country is just aghast at the fact that this allegation of the, the most vile and demeaning and, and horrendous allegations to make against someone, particularly when as it turns out, they were created purely by bureaucratic fluke and that there was no substance to them at all. Um, so the country is, is aghast at this. And then uh, Morris McCabe's solicitor goes on radio the following morning and he says, oh, by the way, Catherine's opponent you had about all of this. Morris met her a couple of weeks ago. And we all go, oh, so you're saying that a member of the cabinet knew about all of this toothless stuff and yet everyone else appears to have been kept in the dark. If there was only a cabinet discussion mm. about setting up an inquiry three days ago, how come Catherine's opponent wouldn't have said anything? Now, by pure fluke... Mm. Catherine Zappone is out of the country. She's out of the continent. She's gone home to Washington State on the west coast of the USA for a family event. She's literally eight hours behind the story and she's totally out of the loop as regards all of this. So then when Catherine Zappone ultimately comes back, uh, she decides that she has to do a press conference on the plinth to explain exactly what she knew and when. Um, but other people in Fine Gael are asking, are pleading with her, mm. before you go out and talk to journalists, can we please just all get in one room and sit down and not to, to manufacture our story, but just to make yeah. sure we're all on the same page and that we all remember things correctly. Because if we don't remember things in the same way, mm. then we're really banjaxed here. What about the press release though that went out from her department that oh, had the previous Friday, yeah. yeah. A press release, a statement that was going to be issued in her name that she hadn't seen. And again, this is where her geography and her eight hours behind comes yeah. really into play because on the morning of the uh, the interview that uh, McCabe's solicitor gives where he says, oh, Zappone knew all about this. And then we were all trying to call up Zappone or Zappone's press team going, mm. hang on, what what did she know about this? Yeah, again, this is outrageous that you would have been known about this and not raised it or made it public in mm. some way. And of course, because Zappone is eight hours behind, even her press officers can't get hold of her. So the press officers start to write a statement on Zappone's behalf, hoping that by the time they get to release it, that at least they'll have had a chance to call her up and make sure that everything mm. that they're proposing to say is totally true. But Zappone is eight hours behind. They can't get there. Meanwhile, you have this whole slew of journalists. Mm. The pressure uh, is mounting. Almost literally mm. melting their phones. Mm. One of the press officers told me afterwards that their phone, it did that iPhone thing where you know where you leave it out on a beach in it's summertime too hot. and it shuts down and it says yeah. it's too hot. Mm. Their phone did that in the middle of an afternoon mm. in February yeah. when there was a cold snap. Their phone said, sorry, it's too hot to work here mm. because they were literally being overburdened with mm. all the calls and, and texts of all of this going on. Government buildings, meanwhile, are saying, don't you dare put out a statement until you've spoken to Catherine's opponent. Mm. We, don't, we don't want any more misinformation or wrongful accounts getting out there. But eventually the press officers in the Department of Children decide we can't wait anymore. This, this, this whole uh, molehill is coming mm. down on top of our heads here now. We absolutely need to put out some sort of comment. So they put out a comment at five minutes to three that Friday afternoon saying... Uh, Catherine Zappone uh, met with Morris McCabe a couple of weeks ago. She was appraised of the existence of this two-slip file. Uh, she agreed to treat the matter with confidence. Uh, she kept relevant cabinet colleagues informed mm. at all times. End of statement. And we go, so now Catherine Zappone is saying that she kept these relevant cabinet colleagues informed at all times. Surely the most relevant colleagues are Enda Kenny and Francis Fitzgerald. Francis mm. Fitzgerald is the one who's responsible for setting up this new inquiry we've been talking about. And Enda Kenny's the Taoiseach. Mm. Surely they need to know these things. As it happens, 
five minutes after the release is sent, where the press officers decide we can wait no longer, uh, at a few minutes past three, uh, the alarm clocks go in Seattle at seven o'clock in the morning and Catherine Zappone gets up and gets out of bed and turns on her phone. And had the press office waited five minutes longer, she would have been able to clarify a lot of the things that were Mm. ultimately said in that statement, but she couldn't. The press office assumed in good faith that Zappone had kept all of her colleagues informed Turns out she hadn't. But then you had this whole situation of exactly who knew what and when, which wasn't helped yep. by Andy Kenny going on radio two days later. And well, that's where it gets very foot. confusing. And uh, fast forward a little bit because we had uh, two different versions of the same story. Yeah. The Taoiseach said, Minister yeah. Sabone said she was about to meet Morris McCabe mm. and he advised her... And she told me in person. ...to take good notes. Mm. And Catherine Sapone said she told Enda Kenny after having met Yeah, and, and this was the real difficulty. And it might sound mm. like it's only a bureaucratic thing. Did she tell me in person she was going to do it or did her officials tell my officials? And in the grand scheme of things, it really doesn't carry any substance because it, if the message gets from A to B, it doesn't matter what the conduit is. The problem, though, is that when Enda Kenny is going on radio and he goes on an interview on RTE on a Sunday afternoon... And he recalls the conversation with really bizarrely vivid detail. This conversation where Catherine Zappone says, I'm going to be meeting McCabe. Mm. And Enda Kenny says, you know, make sure you keep good good notes of this. Make sure you keep a very thorough account. Mm. And that was all there was to say. And I presume if there's anything more I need to know, I presume you'll tell me. And mm-hmm. they leave it at that. Catherine Zappone eventually comes back from her long weekend on the west coast of America and comes out onto the plinth. Having rebuffed those calls that I mentioned from Francis Fitzgerald, please let's just sit down and talk about where we're going with this first. Zappone goes out and she gives her account of the story and she mentions by the by that her officials told Kenny's officials that she was going to meet. And we went, hang on, but Kenny says you told him personally. And and I'm among the journalists there and I say, Minister, just so that we're completely clear about the details here, you're saying that... It, you didn't tell Enda Kenny personally about you're going to have this meeting. It was just your officials that told his mm-hmm. officials. And she says, yeah, that's absolutely correct. Which means that yesterday when Enda Kenny had gone on radio and given this incredibly vivid story with all these little colourful details about make sure you keep a thorough account of this meeting, mm. that he was recalling a conversation that had never taken place. And the idea that you might have an opposition party questioning what the government says, mm. I mean, that's that's sort of ten a penny. That's p- yep. part of the rough and tumble mm. of, of everyday politics. The idea that you have another cabinet minister mm. completely throwing the Taoiseach under a bus is a dramatic whole new departure altogether. So we're going, well, hang on, they, they both can't be right. Either yep. Kenny has given the wrong account on a national radio interview or Zappone has just come back and just completely lied or given a totally wrongful interpretation the following day. But they certainly both can't be right. And there was it was open to debate for a couple of hours who was actually in the right and who was actually in the wrong. But ultimately then Enda Kenny decides, well, if, whether he was right or wrong, he decides mm. that he's going to take the blame anyway. And this goes back to what I said at the very mm. start. There are so many rickety parts to this stool that if Enda Kenny decides to stand his ground and if he says, yep. tries to insist that Catherine's opponent is lying, she's going to walk away out of the government and hardly the whole kid and caboodle is going to come tumbling down and we're plunged into a general election that Enda Kenny doesn't want to lead into. So whether he's right or whether he's wrong, Kenny has to stand up in the door the following day and take the bullet and say, sorry, mea culpa, I got this one wrong, just a, a you know a, a senior moment. And I'm sorry the writing about that. was on the wall for him then at that well, stage. Well, I, yeah. I don't think that he really thought that the mm. bullet would be as fatal as it was. But mm. then because he had got, had to go in there and admit, yep, got my story wrong here, lads. You've caught me. Mm. Sorry, fair play. Won't do it again. Mm. But then everyone goes, hang on. this You can't just explain this away as just being a convenient white lie or a senior moment. This is something as fundamental and as serious as a story about the Garda press office or other agencies of the state manufacturing the most 
devastating allegations against a Garda whistleblower. And you can't just explain away a major problem with that story by just saying, sorry, lad, senior moment. You're going to have to come in here for more questions. So he gets called in for another uh, three or four hours of questioning in the Dáil Chamber that night, and he just cannot get the story straight. Okay. He takes, you know, Zappone told me mm. about this meeting or she told me that there was uh, some role for Tusla but she didn't tell me what the allegations were but actually no, she didn't tell me that there was a Tusla file, she just told me there was allegations uh, and then uh, the whole thing, of, and then the cream on the, on the cherry and the, yep. the icing on the cake is that one of the last questions of the night is says, so when did you discover about this Tusla file? And Kenny says when I saw it on primetime the other night which again completely undermines everything he said a few hours previously. He just could not get the story straight. But either way then, you have uh, the uh, Fine Gael party petrified that there's this motion of confidence coming on the way, that Fianna Fáil have just been shown in an opinion poll to be 11 percentage points clear. I mean, wouldn't they love to be 11 points clear now in the local elections or everywhere else? 11 points clear, you're given an opportunity and a motive to call a general election. Fine Gael are petrified and they say, right, well, if we're going to have another general election... We're going to need to get another leader in place. And then it all culminates on night nine where there's a Fine Gael party meeting and Leo Varadkar stands up and says, time for a new leader. And Simon Coveney stands up and says, time for a new leader. And it's one thing coming from them because they vocally want to be mm-hmm. leader. They've said so. But then after them, Francis Fitzgerald, the Taunashta, mm. and the Kenny's number two, stands up and says, need to get ready for a new election. And okay. that means a new leader. And Pascal Donoghue stands up and says, we need a new leader. And Simon Harris says, we need a new leader. They all traipse out of there and they all go down to the Dáil Chamber. They defeat Sinn Féin's motion and they vote confidence in the government. But Enda Kenny left that room. He was still in, in the office, mm. but he was no longer in power. And the 7th of February was the end of the road, yeah. as you describe yeah. it. Uh, in, in, in case people yeah. didn't get the yeah. pun or it yeah. was a bit too yeah. subtle there. <laughs> <laughs> end of the road, nine days that toppled uh, Taoiseach by Gavin Riley is available now. Thanks for coming into us, Thanks, Gavin. Michael. Thanks, pleasure Robbie. as always. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, if you are interested in Irish politics, you will be very interested in reading Enda, the road nine days uh, that toppled uh, Taoiseach by Gavin Riley. And Gavin has uh, kindly asked us to pass on a copy of the book to you. That's if uh, you're successful in winning a book now, because uh, we said uh, that the nine days began on the 7th of February. We'll give a copy of uh, the book uh, to somebody who can tell us what year we're talking about. And that's where our time runs out on us for today. Remember, before we go, there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Marie in the control term. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM podcasts. Brought to you with Cark McCross Credit Union, where dreaming of warmer climates becomes a reality with a Cark McCross Credit Union holiday loan. O'Neill Street, Cark McCross or carkmacrosscu.ie Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.